Danny. What's up, Tyler? We're back here for episode 80. Damn, it seems like we should be doing something special for 80, but we're not. Not necessarily, but maybe. I mean, this is pretty special. Yeah. Introducing me to another one of the Italian horror masters. Yeah, uh, so in a way it is kind of special for us. This week, if you didn't read the episode title, we're going to be covering The Beyond from... 1981, my birth year. That's right. Lucio Fulci. Lucio Fulci. So this will be your first foray. This is my first Fulci. First foray with Fulci. But before we get into that, do you have any news? Yeah, there's a few bits of information I'll share this week, which I've found pertinent to our podcast. So the first one is because we've covered David Cronenberg several times now on our podcast, but... For those who are familiar, the Soskud sisters, who are responsible for films like American Mary, and they've done segments for the ABCs of Death, and they also did the sequel to See No Evil, starred the wrestler Kane. So anyhow, they are doing a remake of David Cronenberg's Rabbit, which is now filming in Canada. So it's going to be interesting. We'll see what happens after the filming. I might go check it out. It just depends on if they show it in the theater or not, but... Outside of that, I did see, and I mentioned to you during the week, that The Evil Dead 2 is getting a 4K Ultra HD still book in October. Oh, it looks so pretty. Yeah, dude. We looked at it, and that company is Zavi, and they are the exclusive still book for this. And this is uh, coming out October 29th. It's got some really cool features. Never heard of them before. I haven't either. I started looking at some of their collection, and I think they're located in the UK. Okay. Yeah, so... Either way, it's a gorgeous looking It really set. is. 4K, that could end up being... Yeah, and I'm looking at some of their special features, and they've got a shit ton. Design is pretty boss. So for those who are interested, check it out. It's pretty nice. I might have to consider getting that. Now, the other thing that I saw, which is really cool. I'm a big fan of theirs. I've actually got a couple of their films now because of the podcast, but... Over the weekend, because the San Diego Comic-Con occurred, is that Scream Factory announced a shit ton of films that they're releasing. So I'll name off a few of them. So for those who do enjoy some good creature features, they are releasing the Critters Collection, which is a box set. So, you know, check those out. They'll get some lithograph posters for those who are curious about that, all kinds of cool special features. One I mentioned to you is Candyman. It's finally getting a collector's edition. Oh, and I've looked at that art already a couple times. Jesus, dude. I think I might fucking push the button (laughs) on that one. So one we've kind of mentioned in brief is The Craft is getting a collector's edition. I didn't see that. Yeah, which is really cool. Dracula, Prince of Darkness is getting a collector's edition. For those who enjoy a little bit of comedy, we've done some comedy on this. Which one's Prince of Darkness? I guess who did Prince of Darkness? I guess that's what I don't that's know. That's probably better. There's so many oh, actually, Dracula movies. This is an old one. This is uh, the 1966 Dracula Prince of Darkness. Is that sure. Hammer? I think Dracula? It is. Do I just not, not know the full title? Like, Yeah, it sure is. It's the Hammer film starring Christopher Lee. So, okay. Yeah. So that's getting a release. I, I guess I just think of that as Hammer Dracula, not Dracula Prince of Darkness. Yeah, that's a good point. Saturday the 14th is getting a Blu ray release. Expect that early 2019. Silent Night, Deadly Night is getting a collector's edition. One we've mentioned several times. Sleepwalkers is getting a collector's edition release. Another John Carpenter film. I really dig. It's not a horror film, but it's really fucking good. It's Starman. Oh, okay. It's getting a collector's edition. And for those who are fans of Urban Legend and Urban Legend's Final Cut, both of those are getting a collector's edition now, I am a fan of Urban Legend. I think I only watched Final Cut like once. I don't even remember it that well. No, I think I've seen Urban Legend, but I haven't seen Final Cut. 
And because this is relative to today's podcast, since we're doing an Italian horror film, is 88 Films is set to release a mega edition of Roberto Lenzi's Eyeball, which Lenzi's known for being more of a giallo Italian director. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more on the suspense thriller side, more so than on the horror side. But his films are really good, and we'll be mentioning him a little bit later on. So anyhow... That's some uh, bits of information I wanted to share. Uh, like I said, I know the San Diego Comic-Con happened over the weekend, but I didn't really keep up with a lot of news. I did a little bit more on like the comic book movie side of things. Yeah. However, there was one thing that I thought was kind of pertinent, if just being the, in some ways one of the granddaddies of monster movies. Godzilla King of Monsters. Did you watch the trailer for that? I haven't seen it yet. Do yourself a favor, go watch it if you haven't yet. If you like monster movies, if you like kaiju. I mean, like the old school... It seems really hokey, but I mean, old school Godzilla, that's kind of a horror movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a monster feature. It's a monster, yeah. Jesus. We'll watch it in between breaks so you can see exactly what I'm going on about, but King of Monsters looks like it's going to feature Godzilla versus Rodan versus Mothra versus Monster Zero fucking King Ghidorah. That's pretty awesome. And it looks like they, holy shit, so good. To tie in with that, there's a little bit of a horror Easter egg in the background of one of the scenes in the trailer, and they have the Pazuzu statue from The Exorcist. Nice, I'm familiar. (laughs) Oh, two other things I saw. This one's kind of horror-related. They've been trying to do a reboot of The Crow for almost like 10 years now, and it's been officially pulled from Sony's schedule. A lot of people are saying that that means it's dead. I think they've already been trying to make it for like 15 years. It's probably not dead dead, but they're just not going to try to put a fucking release date on it anymore. Like they have been for at least the last five years. They're like, oh, it's going to come out within the next year. No, they can't get directors to stick. They can't get writers to stick. They can't get a a script that they like. I don't know. I know at one point, like Nick Cave did a version of the script. Yeah, I did read that. And we talked about that, I think, a little bit too. Yeah, just all sorts of shit just all over the place one other little piece of interesting news castle rock drops wednesday yeah dude i'm really looking by the time to you listen to this it'll be last wednesday so hopefully you're already watching it but it's only the first three episodes and then i don't know when they do it weekly you think and then they're i don't know if they're going weekly after that or what but huh. it's only the first three episodes that are dropping at first okay jane levy commented on what her character's name is in castle rock I know that we only have to wait a couple days to find out at least a little bit of what's going on, but in order to fuel some speculation already, Jackie Torrance. (laughs) Nice. So if that isn't a huge enough reference for you, being fans of Stephen King, like I said, that should give you a little bit of knowledge of who she might be. (laughs) Think she's going to end up being able to shine? Probably, yeah. (laughs) It's like, I wanted to keep it spoiler-free, but I would imagine so, given the connections to the Stephen King universe. Apparently her character is like the self-appointed historian of the town of Castle Rock. Interesting. Although she seems to be pretty young, she must have just gotten into the town. Although we see that in like It, the kids getting into the town history of... Yeah, I mean, it starts young. So, I mean, that just keeps in with Stephen King themes, I suppose. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to it. It's For the most part, it's a start-sudden cast from what I've seen on some of the trailers. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Looking forward to getting to talk about it a little bit, maybe next week. Yeah, me too. I'm definitely going to be at least starting to watch right when I get home 
Wednesday night from work. I think I'm probably going to do the same. Probably watch at least the first episode. I can't stay up too late. I have to work the next day, too. But Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be fun, man. I'm really looking forward to it. Outside of that, really the only thing else I have to share is I've mentioned before that I've been trying to get caught up on Twin Peaks, and I'm literally on the last episode of The Return, so I'm almost done with it. I guess I should point out, just because I'm a fan and I like the connection, I am a little bit pre-sold on Castle Rock because one of the writers on it I already listened to the podcast he's in. Oh, nice. He's one of Kevin Smith's co-hosts on Fat Man on Batman, mm-hmm. Mark Bernardin. Nice. He's one of the writers on Castle Rock, so. Well, cool. Yeah, I'm super excited to see. I know that he's credited as, like, writer on at least one of the episodes. You know what I mean? Like, he's in the writer's room for it all. But yeah, for sure. Because of how all of that works out. And I don't know how that all works out, but because of how that all works out, like, he has writing credit on, like, episode eight or something like that so okay well we have to stay tuned but yeah that's gonna be fun man so outside of that that's pretty much my news of the week yeah i don't really have anything else let's get into the guts and bolts of this movie i'm ready and bolts yeah number 80 and once again it's kind of hard to believe before we jump into it too far i did just show you that trailer oh yeah so what's your take godzilla dude it's gonna be super epic if you like monster movies it's gonna be the blockbuster smash i think for people who enjoy the theater experience this is gonna be a dope ass film to see in the movies for sure. And there's one right down the road from where you're at that I think I'm going to check it out, possibly with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited. May next year. It's going to be pretty damn boss. Planning already. Beyond that, there was one other thing that I was going to jump into before we got to the guts and bolts, and I just remembered that I forgot to mention it two weeks in a row now. This is just going behind the scenes a little bit, but it's something that kind of surprises me. First off, I feel bad because there's a few episodes, like whenever we bring up Clive Barker, whenever we bring up Stephen King, where I'm like, the fuck you doing listening to a horror podcast if you don't already know who these people are? I learned we have a subset of listeners that listen to us because they can't actually handle watching horror movies. That's interesting, isn't it? Right? They're like, well, we still kind of want to know what's going on, but... You know, I mean, horror movies aren't for everybody. No. They're meant to put people on edge, and some That's people it affects point. more than others. So Yeah, and it's a an action-filmed sequence of those horrific moments, whereas, you know, reading it or hearing it, it's a little bit different. So I'm going to try to cut back on that a little bit, but still, y'all should check it out anyway. Like, I know it puts you on edge. That's part of the fun. <laughs> it's fake. That's why I like it, <laughs> for the most part. I know that you know it's fake. I know it's a complicated thing. <laughs> But still, we would love it if you would watch them as well so we could discuss them more with you. Yeah. However, thank you for listening. That's really neat to know that, I mean, I kind of just thought that this was already for, you know, horror fans in a way. I never really thought that we would have people that are just like, oh, yeah, well, I can't actually stand watching that shit, but (laughs) I still want to know about it. Well, I mean, that's still pretty cool, you know, that we get a little niche audience that are interested in our takes on some of the news and kind of the other stuff that we're into so and that might fit in a little bit with this movie though too because i I don't think this movie's for everybody 
I don't either. I <laughs> wholeheartedly agree with you, and we'll get into all the reasons why here in just a little bit. But yeah, so this we've talked about. It's is, number eighty. It's number eighty. It's your first foray with a Lucio Fulci film. And being a nice round number, in case this is your first foray with us in this guts and bolts section, we are going to try to keep spoiler free and talk about who and what went into the production of this movie. Before we move on to our second section, the How Does That Make You Squeal, where we're actually going to talk about the movie, and it's full of fucking spoilers because we want to talk about it, and we wouldn't be able to remember to not spoil it anyway because we're going to be really stoned by that point. So Yeah, so things are going to slip out. So that's a good way to kind of get yourself prepared for what this section entails and what the next section entails. However, I hope we can really sell you on watching this movie in this section because it is fantastic. Thank you for telling me to watch some Fulci. Nice. Well, I'm glad you enjoy that. So this, I think for the most part, might be my wheelhouse because I am a big fan of Italian horror and giallos in general. Yeah, I'm expecting you to come with all the cast and crew shit. I do. Uh, I so. do have, a, I actually do have a couple trivia points. One that we just talked about a little bit off mic. Yeah. I'll let you share that. I think yes. that's cool. But I do know that this is your wheelhouse, as we've brought up any other time in the past that we have ran into the Italians at all. Yeah, so um, we first delved into the Italian aspect of horror, for the most part, with Argento's opera. And he is definitely ooh, one of the huge maestros. Mm, we hit Italian horror before that. Oh, you know, that's a good point, too. Yeah, because we did Diodano. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We did so, Cannibal Holocaust. I totally forgot about that. Well, not that I forgot that we did the film. Although but that's he, right. I would say that he's considered he different was like a new than, yeah. than guys like Fulci and Bava or and all these. I was guys. about to say yeah. Mario Bava and Dario Argento. Oh, for sure. It's just a different direction these you know filmmakers went in, and Diodata was more in that line. So, but you're right. This is actually the third Italian film, then, which that's a good round number too. Yeah. It's an esoteric number. So, with that, we do talk about the people who go into making the film, and we're already talking about Lucio Fulci. But first, maybe a synopsis? Yeah, a little brief synopsis. Well, I mean, the synopsis for this one's super easy. It's pretty simple. Because, minor spoiler, there's not much of a plot anyway. Yeah. So, this entire movie is premise of woman inherits a hotel that's built on a gateway to hell. That's about as simple as it can get. And that's not really spoiling a lot either. No. Not one bit. But that's definitely your premise and a synopsis, really, for everything that goes on in this movie. <laughs> yeah, so brief synopsis for that. And that's a perfect one, too. So we're already talking about The Beyond. Like I said, it came out in 1981. Our director, of course, is Lucio Fulci. And Lucio Fulci, before he actually got into horror, he was known for like doing comedies, a little erotic films here and there some of the uh i won't say they're risque but they're definitely erotic he also got into westerns so with some of that success on some of those westerns he kind of got more involved with what i was talking about with giallos so with that there was a couple of films that he did and they were a lizard in a woman's skin which i actually own and don't torture a duckling so some of those were kind of his foray into giallos mixed in with what he likes to use, and that's gore. I mean, so we do a warning at the end of this section, but we should probably just point out that if it's a Fulci horror movie, oh, you you're going to be seeing gore. No doubt. So this is a gory movie. Yeah, it sure is. There, 
pre-warning to the warning. Right. <laughs> and then because of those two films, for the most part, he got into doing films such as Zombie, which in his eyes, it was kind of a follow-up to like Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead and things like that from Romero. Then he also did things such as The Black Cat, The House by the Cemetery, The New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, Enigma, and Demonia. And I own almost every single one of those films. <laughs> All right, now along with writing the script, which he helped with the screenplay, we have a few names and I want to mention first. I'll mention Giorgio Morizzo. He helped with the screenplay and he's known for working with Fulci. He did the screenplay for films such as The House by the Cemetery, Contraband, Enigma, and Apache Woman. And the next person I have, and I want to pull up a lot of his information, he's really important in Italian cinema. He helped with the story in the screenplay and his name is Dardano Sacchetti. And he's known for working with Dario Argento. He did some stuff with Dario with The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which is another one I own. It's more of a, a giallo more so than a horror. He also helped with The Cat o' Nine Tells. Then he started writing the screenplay for Demons and Demons Part 2. Now, Argento helped write those and produce those, but it was uh, Michel Soive who did the films. He actually directed those. And he's also worked with Bava for the film Shock. And then he started working with Fulci. That was with Zombie, City of the Living Dead, The House by the Cemetery, The New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby. So as you will see repetitively, Fulci likes to work with a lot of the same people on a lot of his films. Now, Stacchetti, he also worked with guys such as Umberto Lenzi, who I mentioned earlier because of the film Eyeballs. He's worked with Ruggiero Diodato. He's worked with Stelvio Massi, Antonio Margheriti. One of my favorite directors actually for the giallo genre mm -hmm. is Sergio Martino. Okay. His films are awesome. And he's also worked with Damiano Damani. So if you've seen any Italian horror and or giallos, you've probably seen the work of Stacchetti. I feel like you need to be moving your hands more to be saying those names. Yeah, I know. I'm kind of like <laughs> <laughs> chopping here. All right. So along with these gentlemen, we have a cinematographer, and this person's name is Sergio Salvetti. He's done other films of Fulci. The Psychic, which actually has Jennifer O'Neill in it. And we covered Jennifer O'Neill because of Scanners. He's also helped with the cinematography for Zombie, City of the Living Dead, The Black Cat, The House by the Cemetery, some 80s films, Cellar Dweller, which is a pretty decent oh. film. Yeah, He's done cinematography on the film Ghoulies Part 2. And he's also the cinematographer on the original Puppet Master. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was like, whoa, that's pretty dope. All right, now, our editor on this is Vincenzo Tomasi, and Tomasi has worked on some really cool films, too. I wanted to bring him up, and he goes back quite a way, all the way back to the 60s, but you start looking at the films. I mentioned some of them already. A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. He's done The Feast of Satan. He's also done The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. There was a 1974 film called The Antichrist, which is pretty wild. He helped with a lot of those Emmanuel series, erotic films from the 70s. So if you're familiar with those, he was the editor on that. He is also the editor on the film Zombie, Cannibal Holocaust, City of the Living Dead, House on the Edge of the Park, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, Black Cat. So like I said, if you've seen a Fulci film, he's probably edited it. I don't know when else I would segue into this. I feel like this makes more sense during the guts and bolts, though, than during the how did they make you squeal. So while you're on the subject of editors, mm -hmm. I'll throw in the little bit of trivia that I was able to bring to the table. Oh, yeah. Sam Raimi's go-to editor, Bob Murawski. I think I said his name right. Yeah, Murawski. I, I think you're right. Murawski, yeah. He's a huge fan of this movie. 
Yeah, we were actually talking a little bit about that. Because of that, there is probably one second of this movie that has been seen by millions, millions. and millions of people. And you've probably seen it multiple times. Didn't even know it. Didn't even know it. In Spider-Man, the 2002 Tobey Maguire, Maguire yep. Sam Raimi-directed Spider-Man, they ran out of money. But there was a dream sequence that Raimi wanted to do. So his editor used a shot of a spider from this movie in the sequence when Peter gets home from getting bitten and he has like the weird fever dreams and passes out next to his bed. There's a zoomed in shot from this movie that is on the screen for like half a second, a second, but it's just straight pulled from this. And I think like, I think there's a couple shots pulled from dark man. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. This film does have a huge cult following, and we'll mention why. All right, so along with the rest of these gentlemen, we have music composed by Fabio Frezzi, and it's another gentleman I wanted to bring up because he's known for some really cool films. And when you start looking at his filmography, he goes back to the 70s for the most part, and he helped with things such as Four of the Apocalypse, which is a pretty interesting Italian film. He's also helped with Silver Saddle, Maneos, Zombie, Contraband, like these are all Fulci films, City of the Living Dead, Manhattan Baby. He did one, it's called Scorpion with Two Tails, which is actually pretty cool because it has John Saxon, if you're familiar with him. Mm. We've talked about him on Nightmare on Elm Street. But that's actually one of Sergio Martino's films. He's helped with the film Devilfish, Cat in the Brain, and House of the Forbidden Secrets. And he's also known for having a piece of his soundtrack in Kill Bill Volume 1, which there's a Tarantino connection to this film, too, outside of just the music. All right, so along with this, we have some special effects teams. There is Penta Studios. They help with the visual effects, and we have some pretty big names in Italian gore. And these gentlemen are Germano Natali and Gionetti De Rossi and also Maurizio Trani. So once we get kind of into the film, I'll bring up some other credits. They've worked on some really cool stuff. Our producer on this is Fabrizio De Angelis. We have one production company, and that's Fulvia Film. Our distributor was Medusa Distribuzione for the 1981 theatrical release, Astro. Help with, I would imagine, probably the heavily cut edition. Oh, okay. This is for their USA theatrical release. Grindhouse releasing. They helped with the 1998 re-release of the dubbed. This is the first uncut edition that was released in the States. We also have Anchor Bay, which is the copy that I own. They were the entertainment uh, company that helped produce the... 2000 USA DVD and they weren't in collaboration with so our budget on this was like an estimated four hundred thousand dollars It's not a really heavily budgeted film for obvious reasons, but it's still got to pull off some of the things that it wanted to do All right now. I've got two taglines and they're kind of long <laughs> So I'm just gonna warn you so the first tagline I have for this it reads behind this doorway lie the terrifying and unspeakable secrets of hell no one who sees it lives to describe it, and you shall live in darkness for all eternity. Okay. All right. Second one, <laughs> not any shorter. The seven dreaded gateways to hell are concealed in seven cursed places. And from the day the gates of hell are open, the dead will walk the earth. Okay, yeah. Those are both fucking long. Yeah. So that's both our taglines. 
that concludes who went into help making the film. Now we get to talk a little bit about our cast of this project. Once again, a bunch of people I don't know. but <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll lead it off with our two protagonists. The first I have is, she goes by Catherine McCall, but her name is Catriona McCall, and she plays Eliza Merrill in this film. She's known for doing such projects as Lady Oscar, Hawk the Slayer. She worked on a few other Fulci films, and those were City of the Living Dead and The House by the Cemetery. She was also in the film Afraid of the Dark. She was in the film A Good Year and The Theater Bazaar. And some of those more recent projects, she was more or less just kind of like a background character actor. She wasn't really like heavily involved in those projects. I was about to say, I think I might have actually seen A Good Year because that's a Russell Crowe flick. Yeah, exactly. I think she was a little bit more involved in The Theater Bazaar. All right, now the next person I have, and this is a really interesting guy too. This gentleman is David Warbeck. He plays Dr. John McCabe. He started off and actually got some recognition for being in the film Wolf's Head, The Legend of Robin Hood. He was also in a film called Duck, You Sucker, which is actually known as The Fistful of Dynamite. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Spaghetti Western. So he was known for doing a lot of Italian cinema. He was also in The Sex Thief. He was in the film Craze. He was in another Fulci film, The Black Cat. He was in a Tom Selleck film called Lassiter. He was also in the film The Last Hunter, Hunters of the Golden Cobra and the Ark of the Sun God. Now, wait, I was gonna say no. Those, if those names sound just slightly off, oh yeah, it's because they were like ripoff movies, basically. They certainly were. That's supposed to be like Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Deer Hunter. I mean, that's two that are basically ripoffs of Raiders, right? Oh, Hunters yeah, of the I mean, Golden Cobra no and The Ark of the Sun God are both ripoffs of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But because of those three movies he was considered to be Bond. Yeah, I actually wrote that down. So at one point before, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say before Roger Moore, I think he was going to get the part. And because I think some of the, the films that he was doing, they didn't really want to have him for that. And he was starting to age a little bit, I guess, for that character. But anyhow, they still kept him on board. They were paying him just in case Roger Moore ever backed out. And there, there came a point where eventually Timothy Dalton got the part and that's when he started getting aged out for the role so he was a standby james bond that's right that's interesting yeah i was like wow i, I had no idea and i i've been sure how i feel long. about that <laughs> i uh, yeah. think i might have enjoyed him more than more i could see i mean there's there's some interesting maybe fan theory about that <laughs> All right, so another few actors and actresses i have I do love me some dalton though yeah i think dalton's not bad we have Cynthia Monreal. She plays Emily. She also goes by a different name. She goes by Sarah Keller. And I'm wondering about the Keller part. <laughs> so anyhow, Cynthia, she's been in films such as Beyond the Darkness, which is another film I own. She was in Silver Saddle, Return from Death, Warriors of the Year 2072, The Sweet House of Horrors, another Argento film entitled The Stendhal Syndrome. She was in a film called Festival and a film called Under the Skin. And at one point, I believe she was a model, hmm. right? The next person I have is Antoine St. Jean. He plays the character Shrike in this. He was also in Duck, You Sucker. He was in The Wind and the Lion in a film called My Name is Nobody. We have a Romanian actress. Her name is Veronica Lazar. She plays Martha in this film. She actually goes way back with a Marlon Brando film. She was in Last Tango in Paris. You might have seen her in the film Luna. She was in Argento film Inferno. You might have seen her in The Sheltering Sky. She was also in The Stendhal Syndrome, 
Two other films, Besiege and Genostra. The next actor I have is Al Cliver, which that is a stage name <laughs> for sure. He, I think, let me see, I think it was a couple different names he wanted to choose. Mm-hmm. And they had already been taken, like Capone and some other, some other shit. Born Pierluigi Conti. Yeah, so I mean, Al Cliver's definitely <laughs> stage name. So he's been in a few films I want to mention. Mondo Cannibal. Yeah, he was in a film called Le Soprafita. He was in Apache Woman. He was in the Fulci film Zombie. Yeah, you mentioned Mondo Cannibale. He was in the film Devil Hunter, The Black Cat, and Demonia. So he's known for being in a few Fulci films. The next actress I have is Laura De Marchi. She plays Marianne. She was in a couple interesting films. She was in Flavia the Heretic. She was in How to Wonderful to be Assassinated. The film Chaos and the film Youth. And the last actor I have is Michelle Marabella. He plays Martin Avery in this film. He plays an architect. He's been in some other mostly Italian films. He also, something I picked up when I was reading through some trivia on these people, it's a little bit disturbing for some Italian viewers to end up running upon him in this role because he went on to do educational programs on TV. (laughs) So there's people who like have fond memories. Like he's... Maybe not to the point of like a Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. you know, but That's he was like an educational that. figure on TV that kids would have watched growing up, and then you see him, he what happens to him in this. this. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and to go along with that, I do want to point out Larry Ray, who played Larry. Yeah. Only because he was the only fluently bilingual cast member. And so he was the unofficial translator on set between everybody. Now, he was the repairman or, like, the painter in that. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, he was also the head of the Louisiana Film Board at the time. So it's probably why they got to shoot in Louisiana. But, yeah, that pretty much rounds out my cast. I know there are some other actors in this film, but if you look at their credits, they've been only in, like, maybe one or two other projects. So anyhow, along with our cast and crew, we'd like to give you warnings. We've already mentioned this is a gory film. Well, as we go into the warnings, I think this is a good little time to point out some horror movie history. Yeah. Because we haven't really done that really well in a while. Or we kind of have. Yeah. It depends what we're talking about. But we very briefly have mentioned Video Nasties before. Oh, good point. This is technically the third Video Nasty we've covered. However, the first one we covered, that episode never aired. That's the lost episode. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. We then kind we, of alluded to it already. Right. <laughs> I mean, we did. Then we did Cannibal Holocaust, we but we didn't really talk about it being... We mentioned it being a video nasty. But not really. But we talked more about how it's an exploitation movie, especially because the themes of Cannibal Holocaust run along exploitation so oh, yeah. much. This was a video nasty. If you're not familiar with that, how do we want to explain this? Video nasties were basically, at that time, they were films that were, for the most part, they were too gory. They were too violent for censorships. And that was kind of like in that era before certain ratings started to pop up like we have now. Right, like early, super early 80s in the UK, maybe just Britain itself, I'm not sure. When the video cassette market first opened up, there wasn't really any regulations of any sort, and they didn't have to rate a video cassette if they were going to sell it, and it ended up pissing off some members of their conservative party who, by 1984, managed to get like the British Film Board a class BBFC, I think. I don't know what it all stands for. British Broadcasting Film Classification bullshit. I yeah. don't know. Anyway, they had to compile a list 
of these movies that were so bad that they were refusing them ratings, as well as movies that over the like the previous four years had already been successfully litigated against for obscenity. I'm guessing. I don't. Yeah, that's know. usually what the offense was. Do you know which category this fell into? One of the ones that was refused classification, that's or if this point. was one of the ones that was litigated. I don't know the exact. I don't believe in any way this was litigated. This film, I just think it fell into like a latter category of some of that. Of the, they refused yeah. to, to rate it, so you, you couldn't legally sell it for a long time. Yeah, you're right, and it was hard to get distribution, especially here in the states. If you think about it, without it being like heavily cut. Now the thing with the video nasties list is that some of them aren't really that bad. And it was one of those things where it just sort of backfired. Like, you have these 70-odd-some movies. I want to say it's like 79, something like that. Movies that were placed on 73. I don't know, 70-something movies that were placed on this list. And it just made people want to watch the movies. You know, we've kind of talked about that with the previous episode, too. It's like, the more you try to suppress something, and the, the more and more you kind of degrade it, in a way, it makes this niche subcult of people want to get it that much more. Mm-hmm. And I'm just as guilty. I think up until the age of DVD, some of them were still pretty fucking rare, though. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to find, like, probably bootleg copies. I don't know. I've never actually looked through... Oh, I mean, I guess I've looked through the complete list, but I've never looked through to see just how hard it is to track down some of the titles. That's a good point, yeah. But honestly, some of the names on the list, if you actually watch the movies, were tamer than some of the other things coming out at the time. They just happen to have more provocative titles or more provocative box art. You know, for the most part, that's a lot of ways that people were attracted to the film. is because of the box art. However, this movie is pretty fucking disgusting. Back into the warning, some gore happens in this because it's a Fulci film. And <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And I can see uptight idiots in 1981 who are already wanting to slam ratings on movies really not wanting to fucking rate this movie. <laughs> I can see, uh, at that time, the difficulty they proposed themselves. But, yeah, because it is a video nasty, and that little brief history we gave you guys, is we've heavily included the fact that if you don't like gore, if you don't like blood, if you don't like supernatural, if you don't like surrealism, baroqueism, there's some I mean, fetish kind of stuff going on. If you're arachnophobic. Yeah. There's not too much fetish stuff going on. It's more with the shots, not necessarily in the the plot. Yeah, good gore. You're going to see things dissolving. You're going to see bad stuff happening to eyeballs. (laughs) Yeah, lots of that. And for the most part, the effects are all really good. Like, whenever they have to switch to a full-on model, you can tell. Right. But whenever they're using prosthetics and shit, it's really good. So be prepared for some nasty shit if you're going to go in and watch this movie. Yeah, so for those who are familiar with Fulci and the Godfather of Gore, (laughs) you're in for a treat. Oh yeah, we should probably point out that we have covered the Godfather of Gore before. Yeah. Herschel Gordon Lewis. Yeah, he's an They OG. share the title, the Godfather of, of Gore, between yeah. Fulci and, and Lewis. Dope, eh? So Yeah, we're getting to do both the Godfathers. That's right. This <laughs> is awesome. So yeah, with that, without any further adoes, man, the Beyond nineteen. The Beyond God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what, what's going on? Oh Jesus, come on! Oh my God, what's what's going on? Where where am I? Oh gee, why why? Come on, somebody, somebody! Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on, somebody! Sir, 
You must listen. Somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's got to be there. I will God, shock you, come on. Ah! sir. Come on, sir, you must come listen on, to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? Yeah. Now it's time for us to fucking talk about this thing. Yeah, so we already gave you a heads up that for those who are new to the podcast, this is the section where we talk about the film and we get to talk about all the spoilers and everything in between. Yeah, so where do you want to start on this one? I guess because we've already given a brief history lesson, I can give you a little brief history lesson into how I got involved with Lucio Fulci. And I've kind of mentioned it briefly with probably the Argento film opera. And anyhow, back in the early 2000s, I want to say like 2001, 2002, and I started thinking about this the other day actually when I was thinking about video game systems. But when I first bought my PlayStation 2, this is probably like in 01, 02. The cool thing about it at the time <laughs> was that you could play DVDs on it. And I was like, oh shit, I don't have to buy a separate DVD player. So I started looking for films and I used to go to Best Buy. And at that time, distribution companies like uh, Blue Underground and Anchor Bay. So those distribution companies were putting out a lot of Italian horror. They were putting out a lot of horror films in general. But I jumped on the chance at getting some Argento films. And then I started seeing some of the Blue Underground and Anchor Bay releases of Lucio Fulci. And I was like, well, that's another Italian director. And I already like Argento. Let me check this out. So... I got the tin box edition of this film, and that came out, I think, in 2000, but I probably picked up my copy either a year or two later at Best Buy. And it came with some cool features. I showed you some of the stuff that it came with. Anyhow, after watching this film, I think I got The House by the Cemetery and City of the Living Dead and just got it more and more films because I was familiar with them. And, uh, yeah, that kind of started that love interest of all those Italian film directors nice. at that time. So, yeah, I'll go back uh, a little bit with this. My history goes back about a week when we decided that we were going to do this. It was between this and Zombie, and you recommended this, and it turned out to be a great recommendation. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, because I started thinking, I was like, you know, Zombie is probably his more well-known film, but in terms of perhaps in the horror genre, this might be his magnus opus. And I knew that they were both on Shudder, which is always a bonus, because it makes it easy to go watch. Yeah, so once again, we get to plug Shudder a little bit, which I probably should have mentioned this. So this is a little bit of the news of the week. Mm -hmm. it is I think we talked about it last week, where the internet was shut down <laughs> because of fans of... Oh, I saw this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So sometime in the near future, he's actually going to be back on Shudder. And hopefully they'll get their stuff together this time, so that way they can run that marathon without mm -hmm. any glitches. So yeah, anyhow, a lot of the Fulci films are available currently on Shutter. I highly recommend checking them out. I guess what we can kind of lead off a little bit with this film is, I guess it's non-linear plot, I suppose, is the fact that it opens up in 1927 Louisiana in a hotel, and we find out that there's an accused warlock who's opened up portals and or gateways to hell, this being one of the seven gateways. You already touched on its non I, I think the plot's pretty linear. It's just barely there, and maybe yeah, we should it's... address that before we go even any further into the movie. There's, as far as plot goes in this movie, it barely even exists. Yeah, it's, the, it's... the characters aren't being driven by anything. The two main characters don't even really figure out or accept what's going on to them till there's only like 10 minutes of the movie left and it's yeah. already far too late. Yeah, it's way too late. They're not trying to stop anything. They don't really even know for a good portion of the movie that they're trying to survive against something. There's just weird things going on. Yeah, to them it's just a series of circumstances. 
the movie's mostly just an excuse for a lot of almost self-contained horror vignettes that are all happening because... They've opened up something. Because the mouth of hell got opened in town. Yeah, and that's kind of where that opening sets you up with it is you know you kind of get an idea of what's going on with this hotel there's that book of avon which we should mention a little bit has a lot to do the mythos of cthulhu because of hb lovecraft and primarily because of clark ashton smith who helped write some of those pulp fiction stories at the time Uh, i was going to touch on this because this is a little bit of the shit that i do know yeah being a giant lovecraft fan there was three big names in weird tales back in the day Mm -hmm. H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, who created Lycone and the Barbarian, and Clark Ashton Smith. Clark Ashton Smith did write a lot of tales within the Cthulhu mythos, and H.P. Lovecraft used the Book of Avon in oh, The Haunter in the Dark, The Dreams in the Witch House, The Horror in the Museum, and The Shadow Out of Time, mentioning like four of the different translations as well. Clark Ashton Smith was the one to come up with the Book of Avon, though. All three of those authors, one of the things that they would do is all three of them had different fictional tomes and grimoires that would appear in their works, and then they just would sort of share them around. Yeah, And so, like, a character in an H.P. Lovecraft short story might walk into Miskatonic University, into the occult section, and notice, like the necronomicon which is lovecraft's creation sitting next to the book of avon although he would probably use one of the other translations to sort of be like an even more deep cut easter egg for the true fans and then put that next to like the unaussprechen colton or shit like that right just kind of like you were saying kind of dropping either an homage or it could be an easter egg I think Clark Ashton Smith, I know Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft were pen pals. I think all three of them were pen pals to an extent, too. They kind of put up with Lovecraft to an extent because he was a bit more racist. <laughs> yeah, we kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah. But that's a, you know, story, yeah. it's a different story. But yeah, Book of Avon was supposed to be written by the wizard Avon in the long-lost Hyperborean language. Clark Ashton Smith was famous for writing about these different realms and usually his stories are divided up by the realms that they're put in so there's hyperborean collections for clark ashton smith as well as collections on like his other three realms that he's famous for i actually haven't read much clark ashton smith so yeah i'm not very familiar with his works but it is kind of interesting to know that you know he's a part of a trio of writers who collaborated and you know created this really fantastic world That being said, one of my first notes was that the camera work in this movie, it's very unique. I don't know how to better describe it other than it reminded me of a short story. If there was something that like a writer in a story would take the time to write an extra paragraph on describing, the camera would linger there for a second longer, even if sometimes it's a wall to help set the mood before like coming over to the people. But there's other times where the camera is very much just highlighting where the awareness of the characters is. And I don't know how to explain how it always comes across perfectly, but whenever I was watching the screen, I was like, oh, in this case, it's emphasizing this to emphasize the mood. Whereas, you know, in this scene, it's like, oh, it's popping across to show how she's noticing things across the room now. Yeah, you get some interesting perspectives. What I like, too, about the incorporation of those shots is the score in this film. We have to kind of emphasize that, too. This easily jumped into probably my top three favorite horror soundtracks of all time. dope, man. Instantly. 
I put an exclamation point. That was another one of my first notes. The soundtrack is phenomenal. I fell in love with it. I'm going to go just listen to the soundtrack a little bit one of these days. Yeah, I kind of nerded out a little bit over the weekend, you know, because we were doing these films. And I kind of got myself re-familiarized with Fabio Fritzi. And, man, his scores are so good. It's reminiscent of things like Goblin and Claudio Samanetti and just big Italian figures for that genre. They have a certain way of using those synthesizers, man. It also reminded me a little bit of some of the work Louis Bakalov did on like spaghetti westerns oh, too. Oh yeah, yeah. He does use pieces that aren't just like synth heavy. Some of them are kind of a little bit more of an overstall feel to it. And a little bit of like choral stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird like dark choral. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, dude. So that kind of ratches up some of the moments otherwise it would be just kind of like Almost like an everyday movement, in a way, you know? Well, I love it, too. As the film's coming towards a climax, too, some of that score almost feels not so much suspenseful as it does triumphant. Yeah, that's a good point. Which was... With where everything's at at that point, anyway, like, it, it doesn't seem to break the mood to not have it be suspenseful. It's almost like this weird, like, evil's winning triumphant, which... Yeah, I know what you mean. <clears throat> like, this is... Their fate has been sealed. <laughs> pretty interesting but like I said leading off with just that kind of opening you get a little bit of the history with what's going on in that area the people that are involved what happens a fate of a certain character then we get you know a modern telling of 1981 Louisiana this woman inherits the hotel and almost immediately things kind of start fucking happening we talked about Larry and falling uh, off the scaffolding. It's funny because that premise is what led me to look up Clark Ashton Smith. I already said that this camera felt like a short story, mm-hmm. so it already had my mind in that reference place. And I started feeling like this movie felt very Lovecraftian, but not quite. Like, yeah. It felt Lovecraftian, but not to the point where I was actually going to bring it up even on the podcast. I was like, oh, that's just because you like Lovecraft. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> But then after I finished my first watching of the movie that I go and dry for, and then, <laughs> yeah. then once I started yeah, right. reading about it to do my second viewing where I took notes, and people were like, oh no, Clark Ashton Smith, Book of Ibon, like, shit like that. I was like, oh yeah, they were all friends and this and that. Where I thought the premise, though, seemed very Lovecraftian. Just to wrap back around, fuck, I hit a fucking huge pothole and went off on a tangent. I just wanted to mention Lovecraft again. I've brought up in the past where that's the premise for a lot of Lovecraft stories, like The Rats in the Walls, which was the first Lovecraft I read, actually. That's still one of my favorites. Also has one of the most overtly racist (laughs) Lovecraft (laughs) things, but... Oh, yeah, uh, I remember you were talking about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, his cat's name. Yeah. But it's the same sort of deal where... Somebody inherits a large piece of real estate from a long-lost relative that's sitting on a secret that leads to madness. That's literally the plot of Rats in the Walls and this fucking movie. Thinking about like the writers and stuff like that in these type of films, like, and I was thinking about this earlier too, is they can't help and we can't help as humans to show our influences, right? Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder that these guys probably grew up reading the works of Poe and H.P. Lovecraft and Stoker Uh. and Mary Shelley and all these guys. But the cool thing is, is how they incorporate it into their films. Even if you're not familiar, it's still kind of a neat homage and and they're showing that influence cinematically, Uh. kind of reimagining it in a way too. And I did love this movie the first time through, but I think since we keep mentioning how weird and kind of simple the plot is, 
it's probably worth pointing out a quote from Fulci himself Mm -hmm. about the movie. Yeah. Lucio Fulci said, People who blame the beyond for its lack of story have not understood that it's a film of images, which must be received without any reflection. That quote actually goes on, but that sort of, I think, sums up how he felt he put this film together. Yeah, which is interesting, too, because... I also read something that referenced back to H.P. Lovecraft, and it's kind of like a short paraphrase, but he's basically saying, explain nothing. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely nothing is explained in this. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the neat thing about some of his films, is like, you can look into it, and if you understand the references and some of the imagery he's using, it's totally cogent. You don't have to worry about, like, well, there's a plot hole here, or plot... It's not the point. Time and time again, as we've ran across movies where hell or the devil itself is involved usually shit starts getting surreal yep and i'm okay with that that seems to be an awesome side effect of running into hell i love that aspect of it because of that outside influence that you don't see you lose sight of it or you totally forget about it and that's why some of those things that quote unquote need a logical explanation aren't logical it's because you're not factoring in this x factor it's not real anymore exactly it becomes like we were saying the surreal and that's actually one my one of my last notes on this page, I guess. I thought it was one of my last notes in general. Is as I was thinking about that all, and how it's kind of Lovecraftian or Clark Ashton Smithian, mm-hmm. which does not it, yeah. run off the tongue nearly as well. <laughs> Even though it's hell that they're running across, it's very much a cosmic horror story. I mean, it's not so much that there's no plot as the forces that they're dealing with are so powerful, they don't have any control of the circumstance No, they don't. They all. have no control over that. It's going to happen regardless. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't have this hero story where they can stop this ritual or something. Maybe there's a way to close the door, but they don't, know, open, but they don't know about it in time to... No, yeah, it's already too late. ...to deal with it anyway. Exactly. And that's kind of what I like, too. It's because of those circumstances, because of the fact that they don't really stress too much those underlying factors and the fact that yeah no matter what you do it's already inevitable you've already lost (laughs) just them being there and them doing the things that they do their actions it's already sealed their fate another way of looking at it one single ant out in the open there's no heroic action it can take to stop a human from stepping on it if it wants to yeah and the human might not want to step on it it literally might just be walking across the sidewalk it yeah. still appears malevolent to the ant. Precisely. And that's kind of the, a unique view on that. You know, like, it's like these anti-heroes in a way, you know. But what I like about this film, and it takes probably a couple of times to really fully appreciate Fulci's work in this film, is, you know, at first he's like, man, this is some weird shit going on. It's not easily digestible. And then I rewatched it, and I'm like, wow, I kind of like these tricks that he's using. I like how this story uses like these dreamlike qualities, specifically from Catherine McCall's character. Like With her interactions with Emily, the blind woman in this film, she has that moment where she closes her eyes and she envisions her kind of like repeatedly running without sound outside. I'm like, whoa, that's kind of trippy because there's that outside influence again, you know, at play. So, so those outside influences on their characters the way that he used them in this film i thought it was really cool and it led to a lot of the really cool death sequences in this film in general i guess we can talk probably a little bit about that since we've already mentioned that this is a gory film okay i will say upon my first viewing i was almost let down fucking what's his name getting killed in the hotel in 27 in the beginning 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Schweik. Uh, Schweik, yeah. I was almost let down in you. When they were whipping him with a chain, mm-hmm. that was dope. Like, that yeah, gore was flesh. really good. Yeah, kind of ripping. His dissolve, though, was fucking horseshit. And I yeah. was kind of disappointed in you for a minute. <laughs> that's understandable. <laughs> However, that's probably the worst effect in the entire movie. Yeah. I would say that maybe one other that's very one similar. other part, yeah. The other main dissolve I thought was done better than his. Oh, yeah. No doubt. But there was one other part where I, I can't remember who it was, but okay. the head didn't look good. Oh, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you talked about I that, mean, like, and there's other use... parts where, like, you can obviously tell effects are being used. Well, yeah, we can talk about so. the fucking fake spiders all day long. But... Yeah, exactly. But some of the scenes that I did like is when you think of, like, the eye being repeatedly either gouged out or bitten or some kind of fucked up shit happening with the eye. What I like about that, in a way, it's a critique on the audience they're watching, or we are watching the film, right? We have to use our eyes, of course, visually. So why else would it be keep popping these eyes out as a way of, like, either trying to divert what you're seeing, or, like I said, it could be a critique on people who do critique horror films in general, too. It's like, you're not going to like it regardless. Like, for the most part, from what I understand, is some of, like, Ebert and New York Times, and even when they got recut, this film... It's like even the main critics in these major publications, they were still shitting on it. And it's like, I think it was Fulci who kind of stated too, it's it's kind of an examination on the horror genre. It's like, you're going to find an audience like us who really appreciate it for what it's worth. And then you're going to find people who are kind of more in that traditional mold where, you know, a story has to have this certain plot and these certain beats and it has to follow a certain mold. Whereas this gets like super surreal and a lot of shit perhaps doesn't make sense and you're trying to make sense of it. So what I'm getting with that too, it's like, I guess in general, like Fulci, man, he was, he was super clever in how he portrayed a lot of these themes in his films that went over a lot of people's head and with the eye too is what I'm getting at. One of the parts where the eye really stuck out to me that I wrote down in particular in my notes, other than the fact that eyes were just getting fucking attacked throughout this movie was to me this stood out to me as being almost some sort of weird maybe mirroring or just continuation just in these scenes back to back but when joe the plumber was looking into the hole Mm -hmm. and you have the hole being emphasized by the dark and as he's peering into it suddenly you have the hand come out and fucking start to fuck with him (laughs) and that goes directly into the shot Bright, white, center-focused, with the car coming down the highway straight at you, with the depth not being emphasized by what you can't see, but by what you can see and how far away it is, only for her to come to a stop at a character who's all blinded out. Exactly. The evil in both the dark and the light, too. Yeah. What we assume, that character of Emily... In a way, she is trying to help. She's trying to prevent certain things from probably spiraling more than they need to or are going to. But once again, she's still trapped in that limbo state of no matter what, like evil is going to prevail. So maybe you know or can give me a little bit more insight. Yeah. Because one of the things when I was reading about this movie is that the executives were the ones that wanted the zombies in it. Yeah, they did. To cash in on the fact that zombies were getting big at the time. So what the fuck were they going to do for the entire third act before there were zombies? Because <laughs> almost the entire third act involves fucking zombies. 
And a couple yeah. of them I could still see as like working as kind of being Agents, almost like maybe. evil dead or yeah. whatever, you know, however you want to term it. Yeah, I see what you mean. You know, it's never really spelled out outside of that fact, you know, in the, the whole hospital sequence and kind of getting back what you're saying is... What it the would fuck be was it supposed to be? Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be more of a portrayal on the whole afterlife aspect of this film. I don't know, it's not really spelled out, and Full Shields never really made a comment on it either. And apparently the other thing that was added was the fact that the hotel connected to every place in town underneath, mm -hmm. which I didn't actually pick up on that the first time through. I thought that was hell just warping the geometry of them trying to escape. You can look at it that way too, I suppose, but... Yeah, it just, I thought it was kind of neat, too. Like you said, everything's connected. The way I looked at it, too, was just that outside influence. Like, they've already crossed over. They just didn't realize it at that time. Which I think it's a unique way of using Louisiana, like New Orleans in that aspect, too, because of its heavily influence with voodoo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the occult and things like that. So I think it kind of lends its hand a little bit, too, as a background figure, like the town is actually set in. But, yeah, that itself was kind of trippy, too. It's like one of those things, like, how the fuck were they in a hospital? They go downstairs and they're back in the basement, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Like, for people who need a logical explanation, you're looking in the wrong spot. We've mentioned the scene a couple times right now. I'm not, like, normal arachnophobic, where, like, just seeing spiders freaks me out. In fact, like, there used to be spiders lived in bushes outside my house growing up that I'd go, like, catch crickets for and would feed them and shit. Yeah. Like, Bill barn spiders and shit. But as soon as a spider's on me, I lose my shit. Yeah, it's not a, a nice feeling. <laughs> So that scene in the fucking records library, room, yeah. library, it's Study. fucking horrendous. Even though you could tell that 90% of the spiders are fake. Oh, yeah. Even those real ones. Fuck that shit. <laughs> Fuck that. It's kind of funny you mention that. I mean, even though, you know, of course, it's like a main thing in this film. is Last night I was watching it over at my sister's, and my mom was in town, and my nephew and niece, and all this. So there was a lot of kids and a lot of noise, and... Anyhow, I have my headphones, and I was watching this on my phone, and one of my nephews is like, I can tell he's going to be a big horror nut. He already kind of is, but he kept trying to look at my phone <laughs> see what I was watching, and I, I had my headphones on, so I couldn't hear anything, but I showed him those spiders, and I was explaining to him, I was like, yeah, these tarantulas, and typically they're not going to attack you or anything like that, but... It's just knowing that there's a lot of them coming at you and what eventually happens. I didn't show him what happened. I just told him, I was like, this is going to be pretty nasty, so you can't watch this. You know what the worst thing about that scene was? What was that? The dub. Oh, man. <laughs> this film was heavily dubbed. <laughs> we should have mentioned that probably, too. So, yeah, there's some heavy dubbing in this film. But, I mean, because there was a Italian cast and crew for the most part. Oh, man, the dub in that scene is so fucking bad, dude. I should mention that Fulci was actually in that scene as that librarian, caretaker, whatever. Oh, he was the worst dubbed in the entire movie. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. He also has a real A quick... couple of his lines, I was like, I... What, you uh, can tell that's Kung not Kung Fu? <laughs> yeah, you can tell it's not him. There's a scene with McCabe's character where he's taking the call inside that little restaurant he and Liza, and you can barely make it out, but if you pay attention to that mirror where he's taking the call, you can see a man crossing the street in the background. That's another Fulci cameo. Mm -hmm. I think even some of the, like, the composer and the editor, and I want to say Sketty, the screenplay writer, they were all in this film, too. They were oh, part okay. of Lynch Mob. Oh, okay. Yeah. So with that, I did want to mention a couple of guys who did the special effects, so like mostly the makeup artists in this. And uh, two of those guys I already mentioned was Maurizio Trani. He's done some interesting films. The one I did want to mention that he's worked on, which we've mentioned, not really in full detail, 
But he was responsible for doing the makeup on one of the worst horror films, arguably to date. And that film is Troll 2. <laughs> he was a part of the makeup department in that film. I was like, holy shit. Now, he's also a part of that team that's worked on all these Fulci films. And his partner, Gianetto De Rossi, man, he's worked on some really cool films. Like I said, it goes all the way up to more of the recent Fulci films we've already mentioned. But he's also done creative makeup on Dune. I mentioned David oh, Lynch. You cool. Know. He did the special makeup effects on Rambo 3, which I thought was really neat. If you like the film Dragonheart, yeah, with makeup and that, he was a supervisor. Right. So Rambo these 3 guys... is the one where he goes to Afghanistan and helps the Mujahideen at about the time that Osama bin Laden would have been a sergeant in their ranks, right? Yeah, I mean, they're fine <laughs> Russian. The Russians. So John Rambo saved bin Laden's life. Yeah. So, Master, <laughs> you got a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> no, he's also help with the makeup department in another little French film called High Tension. Oh, dope. Yeah. Which we're going to cover. Time movie. By the way. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm getting at with that is these guys are known for their creative special makeup effects. And it goes to show that they pulled off some really cool stuff in this film. I did like some of Joe's makeup effects in this was really good. Some of the eye sequences, I know we talked a little bit about the spiders. I mean, just, you know, having the flesh rip off and scenes like that. I think they did a pretty good job. You know who didn't do a good job? Whoever printed out the sign for uh, Do Not Entry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Going into the morgue. Yeah, I saw that. Do Not Entry. Do Not Entry. That is kind of funny, man. The Lost in Translation. Yeah, so, I mean, you're going to have some of that stuff on this one. Somebody ask Larry Ray. (laughs) Come on. Come on, Larry. You should have picked that one up. I mean, even like... Larry. The two main actors in this. You had one job, Larry. Yeah, one job. (laughs) No, I mean, like like I said, McCall and Walbeck, they both have English backgrounds, so they should have known that too. But I think it's funny, you're right. There's little goofs like that in this film. So, Blindy McKellar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. God, I can't remember anybody's name. Emily. Emily? Yeah. Okay. Emily. Did she have a dog in life? Did they just give her a dog to blend in? What the fuck's with the dog? That's a good point, because we know that it's her character at the beginning of the film, in the house, with Mm -hmm. the book, and we don't really see any dog. (laughs) No. No, here's something I want to mention. Well, and the dog did seem to listen to her until it got attacked, because when it comes back to her, it looks like it's been... Got blood and stuff. You can tell something happened in that exchange. And so, I assume at that point that... But that's the thing, like, is it being controlled by hell at that point? Or is it, like, a more normal zombie? Because if that's it's a more z- normal zombie, it should have attacked her right away. Yeah. I'm looking I for logic like in a part in this movie that's not well, going to Well, that's kind of the but... thing, yeah. It's, it's like, it, ha- it can have multiple meanings. But I feel like it's perhaps her reimagining, like, you know, she got out. And what other way would she have? <laughs> Except for a guide dog. But... That sequence we were talking about with her neck getting ripped out, the first time I'd seen this movie, I was a little pissed off, mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie, because of that scene. And the reason why, and this is unbeknownst me at the time, I like how these guys collaborated, but there was a scene in Suspiria, which came before this film, that is almost a complete ripoff of that sequence. I was like, Argento already done this, what the fuck are you doing? You know, that was my mentality at that time. But the way I look at it now is like, that's a total homage. She's just paying a tribute to a friend of his. I didn't look at it like that. So, yeah, if you're familiar with Suspiria, then you'll be familiar with that scene. So when the main two exit the house, that was one of my favorite fucking shots when they're zooming away and it holds on the fucking house and you see all the bodies 
start walking in front of the fucking windows and you just get all the silhouettes. So fucking cool. It's really oh good. Oh my god. So that cool. puts an emphasis on the fact that shit is really going down at this time. But yeah, I like that too. Nine shots. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nine shots from a six shooter. Why do motherfuckers keep aiming for bodies after we'll you figured know. out only headshots worked? Yeah. That is kind of one of those. Those first too. couple shots, I understand. Then he sees headshots work, yeah, and, and they're not trying to avoid his headshots. He even gets a couple of like successive kills in a row, and you then he goes back to body and shots. Then he goes back to body shots. Yeah. Now that's a good point too. That's another one of these things we could probably you know argue or have counterpoints for all day long. But you wonder too how much of that outside influence is played on him, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. At that point, I feel like they're not under the influence too much. Is the only thing. Yeah. Like, I, and I can no, understand I, he's I, operating out yeah. of fear, but. At the same time, once you figure out what's working... Yeah, you, you like, got to be consistent, but he's not. And it's funny, because he is a doctor. Yeah. Who literally says at a point in this movie, trust me, I'm a doctor. Yeah, no shit. It's like, damn, you fucking up, doc. Another I also those... need to point out, it's a little bit infamous, I realize, right. in doing my research, like a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> the barrel load. Oh, yeah, 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 I know you're talking about. After the nine shots... He goes to reload as the elevator door is closing. It's like a couple minutes after he actually does the nine shots because then he has to run back into, uh, what's her name? Yeah, to Liza. And he runs into somebody else first. But once they're together and he, from what I read, as the actor realized that the audience would get on him if he didn't reload, even though he had already shot nine shots without reloading (laughs) with the fucking revolver. (laughs) So he improvised the worst loading of a fucking oh gun that made that it to the final it. cut he pops it open the right way and it looks like he's about to reload then he starts sticking the bullet backwards down the front of the gun barrel yeah i noticed that i was like <laughs> that's not how you do that and i think she starts to smirk for a second then it immediately yeah. cuts away which i mean that is funny that i kept that in the final edit i wonder how much of that influence was just from the editor he's like you know what fuck you guys uh that doesn't work no, it doesn't. Also, even if you put it in the right way, it's not going to go down the barrel that way, and that also doesn't work. Yeah, that does not work. <laughs> That's funny, though, if you think about that, yeah. One of the things I want to say, too, you mentioned his line. She has a line in this film, too, where she's talking to Emily, and she's like, one thing I learned about living in New York is that I don't believe in ghosts. So well, that's funny, because you're talking to one. <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't think about that. <laughs> That's really funny. I was going to say, as far as line delivery goes, the acting's interesting in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest acting you're ever going to see in a film. It's not the greatest acting, but it kind of seems to fit with the overall... Oh, yeah. With the fact that this movie was intended to just be kind of a series of images, like, everything is kind of toned to just stand alone. And all of their acting is kind of its own declarative statements. (laughs) Yeah, And almost sometimes it seems like the first time they're running into shit. Because even towards the end of the movie, they're not really in terror and truly like trying to get away from shit. Yeah, you're right. It's just like that... It's almost like that it still hasn't quite dawned on them what the fuck's going on. Yeah. You're right. Some of the reactions from the character like Arthur and then his mother, where she like discovers the body rising up out of the water and... Apparently he's like, he's upstairs sniffing around in her panties looking for keys, (laughs) you know, and he's all sweat and shit. There's a lot of that. Even the, I don't know what you would call his character in this film, maybe like a bellhop or just like at the beginning of the film, that guy just profusely sweats as all those people are going up the stairs and stuff like that. They make a big emphasis. 
And that's kind of what I was getting at with uh, a little bit of like the voyeuristic, maybe the fetishistic shots. Is you're seeing it from a certain perspective and a close-up. They do a lot of those zoom-ins and shit. I'm trying to think. I feel like we had one other movie where this sort of started to happen. I did at one point do a write-up on the movie The Devil's Candy mm-hmm. like a year ago. At this point, it's been a while. It's up on the website, though. You can go check it yeah, out. Yeah, check it out. I do like the overarching theme of sort of like hell, I mean, throughout movies, not just this movie, kind of a trope of hell inspiring people to create art. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. As like the devil's influence seeps into people's lives, they tend to make paintings, which is kind of neat. I, I did like, like the art, too. I mean, it's a heavy foreshadowing in this film, for sure. Oh, yeah, especially, yeah, you get there, that was really cool. Although... I don't know if i say I have a problem with it. I really like the ending, but I feel a little bit with, with everything else that we've already been shown in this movie, that just having them fade out and just leave the landscape was a little bit of a cop-out. Perhaps. Because it's almost like they're not subjected to it and they're not there when it's obviously supposed to be that they're trapped there. I think I almost would have liked it more if like, suddenly all of those figures on the ground, if their eyes would have just opened and it cut to black. I can see that. One thing I guess I can kind of put my little two cents in this is I think of that scene, and not necessarily a mirror image of another scene we've already kind of briefly mentioned, but when the guy who's looking at, like, I guess the old files or whatever, the old book in that library study before he falls off. Oh, and the blueprints. Yeah, how the blueprints disappear. So they kind of, it's fading out. And then they're fading out. And I'm wondering, too, like, how much is it, even though, you know, they don't have a movie that's like a sequel, but how much does it influence, like, maybe the next people who come through and the next people? Like, you know, it's all these things are happening to influence these people, like, crossing that gateway or to open this gateway. How long does it, you know, stuff like that is what I'm getting well, at. Well, now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking about it again. And I'm wondering if in that it's moment... Like a trap. Well, I'm wondering if in that moment that's what happened. They each made that deal. That's why they went blind. Yeah, because like Emily was shouting at the zombies, like I did what you wanted me to do. I get to stay out, right? Like, yeah, she, didn't she want to made go back. a deal, and the deal seemed to be to help drop people in. And I'm guessing in that moment they were both so scared of being there in the afterlife that they made the same infernal deals, and so they're heading back. To Could bring... be, like I said, it's this vicious cycle <clears throat> of these people who've already experienced that side. Yeah, they're making this deal for that that little bit of time on the outside. <laughs> To bring people on the inside. So then I guess the one last thing, you know I like trying to connect things in my head. Is there any reason why the location in Baskin isn't another one of the seven doors? Uh, You know, I'm kind of curious how much, now that we've reviewed a lot of these films, I wonder how much that affected John, like this movie, how much of an influence it was on Baskin. You know, perhaps, but yeah, it could be. Just like headcanon? Yeah. doesn't actually affect well, yeah, reality yeah. in any way. But still, it's a, it's a good way of looking at that. It's not an official trilogy that this is part of. It's one of those unofficial trilogies right, exactly. where it's just like they a just series like of a, themes. That was what I uh, said. They had the same kind of themes. So there's no more mythology to this, and there was no other mythology to bask in other than they intercepted a segment of hell. Exactly. Where sort of the same sort of things start happening. <laughs> they get weird. looped in we on each other. about those time loops and stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is really cool. And there's supposed to be seven of them, according to this at. movie. It's like, so if that's the case, we've discovered two of them. <laughs> We're looking for the other five. I mean, in my head right now, Baskin is one of them. This yeah. is one. That's two. 
We got five more to go. The Hellmouth and Buffy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very well. Well, there's a film perhaps we'll cover a little bit later on. Its name kind of implies it a little bit. That could be one. Not sure yet, but... But yeah, it's kind of interesting. I wonder how much Baskin is influenced by this film. And I feel like I bring up Baskin a lot now, but Love that's how film. much I ended up liking the movie. Yeah. If you listen to our episode on it, like, if because I keep bringing it up, you decide to go back and listen to our episode on Baskin, it doesn't sound like I like it that much. <laughs> well, the neat thing, too... I like too, that movie a lot now. Well, think it's how many films we've done since so then, much too. On me. Yeah, how much time we've had to think about it. And that's kind of the thing I like about, you know, the fact that we're open to go back to films, too, down the road at some point. But I guess overall with this film... For me, it was a total cornerstone of getting into more European-style horror films. It's one of those I will only recommend to like a certain audience that are familiar with these types of works or you know who are into the kind of stuff that we're into. But you're right. You made a, a really good disclaimer that this film isn't for everybody, and not everybody's going to get it. No, this is a gore film through and through. Yeah, I mean, it's got some really cool elements. I mean, even the fact that he's using the influence of Clark Smith and that whole mythos, you know? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but they're using this spiritualism because you have to remember too that a lot of these Italian filmmakers are still Catholic. I mean, even their themes are heavily predicated upon like the dark side of humanity and opening up these supernatural forces with hell. It's like, there's not a lot of people outside of, you know, like to certain niches who will tackle that subject, you know, like dealing with death and what's beyond it. It's like, you can only go to a certain point where death is, that's it. Once you're dead, you're dead. There is no explanation beyond that. They do a good job of kind of painting that picture for you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have much else to say other than people should watch this movie. Yeah, I would agree. Like I said, I'm glad we finally got to talk about a Fulci film. I mean, he's got a lot. There, are I want to watch more Fulci now. Like that, yeah. definitely. This has convinced me. This They're is a great really flick. Is there a Blu-ray release? I kind of want there to watch Blu-ray. There is. So yeah, man, it's like I said, one of those films that we got to you know talk about. We could have gone a couple of different directions with Fulci, but I think just for a starter, this is a pretty decent one. This is a movie I, I now like enough in a specific way where if you're listening to this right now, Jesse, and you haven't watched this movie yet, download it and watch it. Yeah, dude. So one thing I wanted to mention, I told you there Calling was... Calling you out, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> there was a Quentin Tarantino connection to this film. And the reason why is because of Rolling Thunder Pictures. They helped restore the DVD. And they were the ones who helped with the uncut version back in 1998. So along with like Grindhouse Films, and then of course later on with Anchor Bay, these were kind of some of those people who were influenced by it, you know? So there's a reason why Freezy was used in Kill Bill Volume 1. And you kind of see where Tarantino, where his Italian influence is coming from now. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's all I got. Yeah, no, I guess the only other one I have, one bit of trivia to share. I did see a music video of, I can't remember the name of the band, there's like... It's not necrophagia, but it's something of that magnitude. But anyway, they covered a song that deals with this film, but a bigger band, the Swedish rock group Europe. Oh. Yeah, they have a song called Seven Doors Hotel, and it's from their first album. (laughs) Europe has a fucking song about this? The Final Countdown. Yeah, they sure did. So it's pretty neat. Like Apparently their lyrics are a retelling of the plot of this film. I am going to have to listen to that. Now. It says uh, the song became a big hit in Japan, and it is still a popular track at their live shows. Brilliant. All right, here's one thing I want to read before I, I sign off on this. And this is from Lucio Fulci, and this kind of deals with the film overall. All right, 
So this is his statement. This was dated 1993. He says, What I wanted to get across with this film was the idea that all of life is often really a terrible nightmare and that our only refuge is to remain in this world but outside time. In the end, the two protagonists' eyes turn completely white and they find themselves in a desert where there is no light, no wind, no shade, no nothing. He says, I believe, being Catholic, that they have reached what many people imagine to be the afterlife. So if you need some kind of explanation for this film, that's directly from Fulci himself. <laughs> Outside of that, man, I really like it. I think the more I realize, since we've been doing this more often, with some of the films, it's just circumstantial. It wasn't, we, we did it because of this factor. But the more I see of that outside influence, how mm -hmm. it affects things that you don't see, you don't have this physical connection to the two. It's like, man, that's kind of a neat way to play with film. Mm -hmm. It's like you can explain it by just saying there's this outside influence. It's as simple as that. <laughs> don't make it complicated. Which, I mean, I understand that's also not for everybody. That's what I'm getting at. It's like, that's probably why it's not going to be for everybody. Some people need that. And I get it. Yeah. It, In some movies, it. I need it too. Well, yeah, of course. You can't just throw it out in every single horror film. And that's how it, no, no it doesn't work. For everything but in this case it's really done well so yeah outside of that recommend this film check out his other films if you like those check out some of the other Fuck, directors do this mentioned. straight into baskin dude you could do the double feature you're going to hell for a night that would be fun wouldn't it like an old drive-through double feature yeah, you get like the old school into yeah. the new school exactly see how one influences the other so yeah watch both those films Let's see. We don't uh, have so, another one planned again. <laughs> no. We don't have next week figured out, do we? Not yet. Not yet. Nope. So, you guys are going into it blind. But in order to listen to us next week, and we hope you will, please go check out our website, www.friedsquirms.com. There's links up at the top to the most popular services to listen to us on, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, etc. You can always just search for us on whatever you like to use. We're probably on it. If you go down to the bottom of our website, we are always streaming our latest episode down at the bottom. News is on the in-between and links to our Instagram, which is Fried Squirms Podcast, our Fried Squirms Facebook page, and our Twitter at Fried Squirms. Or you can always email us directly, squirmcast at gmail.com, or use the contact form on our website. And we know it works, Marquand. Talking to you, it seems like we do that every week, but he hits us up all the time. He hits us up all the time. Yeah. Um, that actually reminds me, I might have a recommendation for next week. We might have just nice. figured something out. Okay, well, cool. So for those who are interested, keep pumping out the recommendations. Like I said, we're open to collaborations. Or if you just want to drop a line and say hello, you know, we like hello. that too. Hey. Yeah, so, you know, we're always open to feedback. And we just enjoy the fact that we get to talk to you guys every week. But for this week, Fried Squirms, out. out.